Good morning. What a joy to be with you. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah. And and hopefully as we go through this passage, you know why so many of the hymns were speaking about the death of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 52. And here is where the chapter divisions. Are more annoying. (laughs) Than might appear but. There should be no division here of chapters because he's continue the flow of thought. So I want to invite you to stand up and let's read starting in verse 13 of chapter 52 of Isaiah. And then you're going to read through 53. Here's the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act, act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond, beyond the of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one from whom whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every single one of us to his own way, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living? Stricken. For the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through your Son, Jesus, in the power of your Spirit. And it's that same Spirit that was in creation, bringing creation into existence, bringing us into a new creation. By regeneration, we pray that the same Holy Spirit would be work sanctification in our lives and the work of illumination. Open the eyes of your church, open their ears to hear your voice. Lord, I pray that you would guard my mouth, guide my words, help me to be rooted and grounded and imprisoned to your word. So help me, help this wonderful congregation. We are so thankful for your mercy upon us. Thank for your love. Thank for your provision in our lives. Thank for our daily bread. Thank for water, food, cars, job, healthy bodies. Thank for being able to speak and sing songs to you. For ears that can hear you. We give you all the glory, all the praise, all the things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. According to church tradition, next Lord's Day is called what? Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And, and that's a time when the church stops. Traditionally, we have no command in the Bible, but just a tradition, and I think it's a healthy one. To stop and, and, and think about the profoundity, the majesty, the beauty, the immensity of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we have Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And before the resurrection, in order for someone to be resurrected, there must be what? Death. Death. So I'm taking, since we don't have a service Friday, I'm taking today to talk about the death of Christ. I would like us to prepare ourselves by beholding the death of the servant of the Lord. So next Lord's Day we can see the glory and the majesty of his resurrection. Okay? Uh, and I hope that we can see through Isaiah things that no naked eyes could see as Jesus was hanging naked on that cross. And Isaiah gives us insight to see what was taking place. Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Look at that, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, what? In accordance with the Scriptures. The scriptures here, he's referring primarily to our Old Testament. And we have seen in our recent studies in the structure of the Tanakh, how the Tanakh, the structure itself, 
preaches the resurrection of Christ, coming back from exile and, and restoration into God's presence, life in God's presence. But today, I don't want to look at the structure. I want to look at one very specific passage in the Old Testament where we hear about not only the death, but the resurrection of the Lord Jesus also. And that's Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. We also, in our series, as an overview of the Bible, we saw how the Bible is structured as a comedy. Do you remember? The, the story of the Bible, the drum of redemption, is a comedy. And if you remember, comedy is not just something that makes you laugh. That, that's our view. I, I, I want to watch a comedy. It's just something that you're laughing at. No, but comedy, well, it is a genre where you have something very good in the beginning, descends to something tragic, and then rises to a happy ending. Uh, for example, the Dictionary of Biblical, Biblical Imagery notes that a full-fledged comic plot is a U-shaped story that descend, descends into potential tragedy and then rises to a happy ending, as obstacles to, the, to fulfillment are gradually overcome. The progression of a comic plot is from problem to solution. The typical ending of a comic plot is a marriage, feast, reconciliation, or triumph over the enemies. So you remember, that's how a comedy is structured. And what I want us to see this Lord's Day, and hopefully next Lord's Day, is how Isaiah is painting or writing the comedy of the resurrection through this servant that he's talking about. So, here's the outline of the sermon. We are going to be looking at the exaltation of the servant, and we are going to see that this comedy is actually a song. You sing this song, this comedy. So there are stanzas. So the exaltation of the servant is the first stanza. Then we're going to look at the humiliation of the servant, stanzas 2 through 4. And then next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we look at the exaltation of the servant, stanza 5. And that deals with the resurrection of Jesus. And I have a hard time just landing on a book without explaining some of the context and what's taking place. So, as we come to Isaiah 53... It's important to see the structure of Isaiah. And, and remember, as we are studying the order of the Tanakh, you think about Isaiah. Where is the prophet Isaiah? Oh, it's in the latter prophets. Do you remember, you have the Torah, you have the prophets, and inside the prophets you have the former prophets, the narrative, and then it starts the block of poetry with the latter prophets. And remember, you have a long narrative from Genesis to Kings, and then you have a, a block of poetry, and that's the commentary. God is explaining what's going on. God is explaining what's going to take place. So you know when you come to Isaiah where you are in the story. Here's God giving explanation, giving a commentary of why they are where they are and what he's about to do in the future. And especially as you come to Isaiah, the book itself, Isaiah 1 and 2 is the doorway to the whole book. So the first two chapters of Isaiah are the major themes that will be explored through the rest of the book of Isaiah. And the major themes is covenant violation, judgment, and the future restoration and transformation of Zion. 
So, for example, here is the Lord bringing condemnation, judgment upon his people. They broke the covenant. They're red as scarlet. They look like lepers. They're sick. But then the Lord starts talking about something he will do to restore them, leading to the transformation and renew of Zion, chapter 2, where you see the nations coming to Zion to worship the Lord in his mountain. So that's what we have in in chapters 1 and 2. And then in your Bibles, you can see, if you turn to Isaiah 36, Isaiah 36 through 39, suddenly you have a block of narrative. It's, It's very interesting. The poetry is is broken now. There's a pause. And then from chapters 36 through 39 of Isaiah, you have what? Narrative. And this narrative is talking about the Assyrian, Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile. So in these chapters, you have reference to the Assyrian exile. That's the northern tribes. They're destroyed by the Assyrians. And then... You come towards the end of chapter 39, you hear about the Babylonians, and that would be the southern tribes and taken into Babylonian exile. So with this narrative, we pause, and it's lingering, it's smelling, it's heavy on us, the exile. So chapters 36 through 39, you have this narrative immersed in judgment, exile, until... You turn your page and you come to chapter 40. And how does chapter 40 start? Comfort, comfort my people, says God. So books 40 to 55 is known as the book of consolation or the book of comfort in Isaiah. Chapters 40 to 55. This whole section is known as the book of consolation because the primary focus here is the comfort of God's people in exile. The Lord will come to rescue them. And this future consolation is not only for Israel, but it's for Israel and what? The nations. This future consolation, this future comfort, this future restoration from exile is not just for Israel, but it's for Israel and the nations. And the Lord will rescue and redeem Israel once again to gather the nations. Peter Gentry, he makes a, a very important observation here. He says, the return from exile is not, a chronolog- is not a chronologically singular event. The promise of redemption envisioned two distinct events. Release first and then forgiveness. Release involves bringing the people physically out of exile in Babylon and back to their own land. Forgiveness entails dealing fully and finally with, this, with their sin and the broken covenant. To adopt, a, adapt a, a common expression, you can take the people out of Babylon, but how do you get Babylon out of the people? And that's these chapters are telling us there are two major events here. The first one is this bringing back The Lord will bring them back from Babylon, physically. And we know, we saw that with Ezra and Nehemiah, that even though they came back, Babylon was still in their hearts. Because they're sinning again. That's how Nehemiah ends. They're breaking the covenant. 
So the Lord promised there will not only a physical return, but there will be something deeper. So Isaiah tells us that this future restoration, this future comfort, is, will be accomplished by two servants, two anointed ones. First one is Cyrus. Who was Cyrus? King of what? King of what? Persia. Yes. You have Cyrus, king of Persia. He comes to take over the Babylons, and then he releases. That's, that's when you have Ezra and Nehemiah coming back. And the Lord promises that he will raise his servant, his anointed one, Cyrus, to release his people back. But that's not it. Who he's going to use to deal with the sin of the people and change their hearts? Isaiah tells us that this character, his name is the servant. The servant of Yahweh. Okay? Uh, So you have these two agents. One will bring physical return, and the other one will bring the true spiritual end of exile. Uh, Isaiah, and as we are walking through these chapters here, Isaiah 40 to 55, we have four major songs about this servant. Has anybody here studied the book of Isaiah? That you know that there are the four songs of the servant? Anybody? Okay, some people. So, chapters, and you have there, you can go home today and read. So, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and then 52 through 53, you have the four major songs. And some scholars, and I agree with them, they, they say that there is five songs and that would be in chapter 61, I believe. It's a, a final, but, but it's out of this major block here. So in Isaiah 42, for example, this servant is described as the anointed of the Lord. In chapter 49, the nation of Israel is identified with the servant and the servant with Israel. So you have this representative aspect of the servant. The servant will suffer. Chapter 49, verse 7. In Isaiah 50, we see the faithful servant suffering. So we start seeing these pictures of the, the songs of the, the servant, and he embodies Israel. He represents Israel, God's people. And at the same time, he's an individual. And all these songs culminate with the fourth song, and that's where we are in chapter 52 and 53. That's the final and climatic servant song. Isaiah 52 through 53 is known as the Mount Sinai. That's the holy mountain of the prophets. Or Mount Everest, the highest mount where we can climb to see the beauty and the majesty of the Messiah in the Old Testament. One scholar says, come into the fourth song. That's where we are, chapter 52 and 53. Come into the fourth song. We enter through the veil of divine mystery and into holy ground. We behold the servant led like a lamb to the slaughter, despised by men and crushed by Yahweh. The title servant is very important. Why is it his title servant? The major characters, Moses, Joshua, David, they were known as the servants of Yahweh. And in particular, David. David is the most well-known servant of the Lord. And This servant is called servant because he is from the line of David. He's kingly. He's royal. And because he's a king, he can represent the people. He can identify himself with the people. That's the beauty of the relationship between 
the king and his people. So he is the servant or the slave of Yahweh. And you can see as we come to this beautiful song about the suffering servant, how it's very well structured. You have five stanzas, and each of these five stanzas have three verses each. So the beauty, the symmetry, and the majesty of the song matches the majesty, beauty, and symmetry of the atonement of Jesus. So the beauty and the structure here resembles the beauty and the majesty of the work of Christ himself. So you can see how the servant, and if you're looking as the comedy, the shape of a comedy, you can see how the servant moves from glory to greater glory, but this movement has a descent. And that's the comedy of the resurrection of the servant. Just like Philippians chapter 2. In glory, he did not count something to be grasped, but he descended like a slave, and then he raises back with even more glory. So, and this structure is important because in the heart of this song, you have five stanzas. And right in the middle, the middle stanza is the explanation why the servant is suffering. You can see that. The, the middle stanza is the explanation why he is suffering and dying the way he is. Uh, so turn with me to Isaiah 52 as we start walking through this this text. And you can see, uh, look at verse, verse 7. Here's the context flowing to, the, to this beautiful song of the, the servant. So Isaiah is talking about the deliverance that will come. And then he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings what? The gospel, good news, who publishes peace. It's important because he's going to talk about the work of this servant bringing peace, shalom. Who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And li listen to this. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The first time that the arm of the Lord is mentioned in the Bible is in the Exodus account. So what Isaiah is painting is a new Exodus that the Lord is coming to bring to his people. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. That's the context, the context that leads to the song of the servant. How this good news will be accomplished, how this peace will take place, how this redemption will be brought forth. Can you see the flow? And now he brings to chapter 52, and now we can start walking through the exaltation. So first he's talking about this servant who will bring this, and he tells us about his state of glory, 
No, he says, Behold my servant. He shall act wisely. That's the ESV. Or be successful. Does anybody have a version that says he will be successful? Or succeed? Okay, the idea here is, behind acting wisely, is that he will be successful. Just like a doctor shows his wisdom by being successful in a surgery, amen? The same with this servant. He is going to show himself successful in what he does. He will prosper despite all the suffering that's coming. And then in verse 13, look at that. Describes him as high and lifted up and exalted. The only one in the book of Isaiah who is described as high, lifted up, and exalted is who? Yahweh. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord what? High and lifted up. So we start seeing that this servant, it's very interesting because this servant has the same essence that Yahweh. How can that be? This servant is high and lifted up. He has the deity of Yahweh. But at the same time, we know that later we are here that Yahweh is the one who does what? Crushes him. So how can he be one and yet different? And that's the beauty of the Trinity. The persons, the same essence, different persons. And that's why he's described as the arm of the Lord. He's described as the arm of the Lord. He's an extension of Yahweh. He belongs to Yahweh. And yet, he's a different person. So, and then, of course, the New Testament will develop this, and we understand the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But you already see in the Old Testament, the Spirit. We see this messianic figure who is divine. And then in verse 14 and 15, uh, we, we, we have a, a problem here. The ESV says, as many were astonished at you, and then you have a hyphen. The ESV, the NIV has a hyphen there. His appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human, uh, human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And you see that as they are translating, they are feeling the awkwardness of translating this like that, that they put a hyphen here as if it's, it's not flowing with all the dignity and the beauty and the majesty of him. But So other scholars, well, acquainted with Hebrew language, they translate this different. And I think there is a better translation. And I'm quoting here Peter Gentry. And he's, I can send you his article if you want to read. There are other authors. He, he translates like this. As many were astonished at you, so his appearance was anointed, anointed beyond all humanity. Therefore, his form was beyond all that of humankind. And it makes so much more sense. He's talking about this suffering, this servant here, being the greatest anointed one of the Lord. And it makes sense because verse 15 tells us that he shall do what? 
Look at verse 15. What, what, what is he going to do? He sprinkle many nations. Who used to sprinkle things under the old covenant? The high priest. The high priest was anointed. So for me, it makes much more sense to see him as not only a king, but a royal priest who shall sprinkle, just like the high priest would sprinkle and bring purification to the tabernacle and the people, he will sprinkle not just the tabernacle there, but all the nations. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So acting as in the day of atonement, a high priest, his king and priest. And then you see in verse 15, look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Do you see? Through this sprinkling now, nations and kings, the idea of kings representing nations, now they can see and understand. Something that they could not do before, the sprinkling of this priest, the purification that he brings to others. So you see the work of him, his glory, his majesty. So Gentry summarized these verses as, The servant will act with insight, prudence, and skill. He will be successful. As a result, he will be exalted to the highest position. Many will be utterly astonished. The greatest leaders of the earth will be left speechless. So that's the, the glory of the servant. And suddenly we start going down to the humiliation of the servant. Stanzas 2 through 4. So the servant moves from exaltation to humiliation. The glorious servant becomes the suffering servant. And we see that in chapter 53. And that's the first, the, the second stanza here, the first related to his humiliation. The second stanza in the, in the song, we have verses 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm, look at, the arm of the Lord been revealed? And what Isaiah is saying here is that this message of this salvation through this servant is unbelievable for the carnal mind. He's saying that's foolish. People will not gravitate to this message. As Paul says, it is scandalous. And to whom shall the arm of the Lord be revealed? The arm of the Lord throughout the scriptures is a reference to the Lord in power, the power of God in action. And you see the, the, the parallel here, this servant is the arm of the Lord. He is the one who is bringing salvation, deliverance. And every time you thought about the arm of the Lord, you're going through the Old Testament, you're thinking about something mighty, majestic, beautiful, glorious. And then he explains why people cannot believe and enjoy this agent of Yahweh. Look at that. Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, you were expecting to be a mighty, kingly, royal arm of the Lord to come to save. And yet the picture is 
of something completely the opposite. And in ancient Near East, kings and kingdoms were compared to trees, big trees. Remember, the kingdom of God is compared to a tree. Read uh, Babylonian accounts and you see how kings would see themselves as trees, majestic trees. And yet, this king who is coming to deliver his people is what? A twig. A skinny, ugly, little twig coming out of a dry ground. That's not to say that Jesus was ugly. People say, oh, Jesus was ugly. That has nothing to do with that. The whole purpose here is to say that he did not look like the kings of the ancient Near East. He did not resemble the kings that they were expecting him to come. And that's why they refuse to believe. They don't want that. That's not the king we are expecting. And then in verse 3, the humiliation aggravates. And now we move from failure to desire him to despising and rejecting him. Refusing even to look at him. Now they don't want to even look at this man. Away, away from my eyesight, you who claim to be the king and the deliverer. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So in this stanza, we see how heinous and ugly sin is. Sin blinds mankind to see the beauty and hear the sweet sound of the gospel of Jesus. Sin makes men blind to the glory of Christ. And that's why we call total depravity. The totality of man is infected and affected by sin. Our, that's Romans chapter 3. Our mouths, our eyes, our ears, our feet, our hands. Men cannot see the beauty of Christ, man by nature cannot hear the sweet sound of the gospel. Man by sinful nature cannot walk towards Christ and embrace Him as King. We need a God to save us and change us. And that's what this servant is about to do. And notice also the changing voice. Who has believed what he has heard from us? They see he moved, now it's us. There is a change in the voice here. Our message. We. Who are these people? There is a change. Who is the us and we here? I believe it is those who have been redeemed by this servant. And now they can look back and see who he truly is. Michael Morales, he says, we hear, as it were, the confession of Israelites who had once despised and rejected the servant. Assuming him to be damned by, damned by God, they have since discovered to their shock that the same one from whom they had hidden their faces has been exalted, vindicated, and set forth by Yahweh as his faithful servant, the one through whom Israel would be raised up, even the seed of Abraham through whom the nations would be restored finally to God. Healed of their blindness by the servant's exaltation, they are enabled now to see clearly the wonders of Yahweh's profound wisdom and provision. It was, in fact, our sorrows that, bore, that he bore, and it was for our transgression that he was wounded. So the voice here, it's my voice, and I hope it's your voice. It's our voices joining together, the voices that once mocked him, the voices that once called out to crucify him, 
now looking back and joining together to praise this suffering servant. Amen? All glory be to God. Now I want to move to the fourth stanza. I will skip the third, and I'll get back after we deal with this one. Verses 7 through 9. And Isaiah here continues the humiliation of the servant. But now it's stronger words, stronger expressions for his death. Here we reach the climax. He suffers to the point of death. And you see, I, I try to show you how this suffering matches perfectly with Jesus' trial, death, and burial in the Gospel's account. So verse 7, you have the trial. Verse 8, you have his death. And in verse 9, you have his burial. Just like in the Gospel accounts we have right here. Isaiah used Old Testament imagery of sacrifice, exile, and death penalty or execution to describe the humiliation of the servant. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb. Here's the sacrificial imagery. Jesus, the Messiah, the servant, now he is the lamb of God. Like a lamb that's led, led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the servant is pictured as a sacrificial lamb who will bring the true Passover. Jesus was oppressed and afflicted his whole life, but especially the night before his death. He was afflicted by the reali realization that he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath, and he was afflicted by the lies and false accusations thrown at him. And the silence here, the silence of the lamb, is not the, the silence of a victim that has nothing to say to defend himself, but it's the silence of a victor who knows the vindication is coming and he doesn't need to defend himself. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter calls us to imitate the Lord Jesus, and he uses exactly this passage here. In verse 8, look at Isaiah 53, verse 8. Now Isaiah used the language of exile, cut off from the land of the living, taken away. This is all terminology of exile. And what is exile but death, being away from God's presence? So you have now this servant going into exile, removed from the land of the living. He goes into exile in order to bring his people back into God's house. And then it says that he was stricken for the transgression of God's people. That's important. This same Hebrew word was used in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When, do you remember? Maybe you don't remember, but when the Lord promised that this son of David, remember it says, and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of man. And remember I said, I don't think that's Solomon, I think that's Jesus. And it's not him sinning, but his people sinning. Therefore, he takes upon him the punishment that belongs to his people. And that's exactly what we have here, the same Hebrew structure. That now he's being stricken by God, not because of his sins, but because he's identified with his people. Therefore, he takes the sin of his people. And in verse 9, we have his burial. He's buried. Uh, so let's move to the third stanza. Let's go back now and look at verses 4 through 6. And that's the heart of the, 
this song, and that's the explanation why this servant is suffering like he's suffering. And, and honestly, people can watch a million times the movie, The Passion of the Christ, by Mel Gibson. You can watch, you can watch any movie about the crucifixion of Jesus, and you might have your feelings aroused, you might cry. <laughs> but honestly, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of men who died just like Jesus died. His physical death was not different from any other man in the Roman time being crucified. What makes his crucifixion different is the reason why he was placed there and who he was. Not just the death. Many thousands and thousands of people were hanging on crosses. But the reason why his crucifixion was different is right here. The explanation is given by God himself. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 4. Yet we, when you're looking at him, before the opening of our eyes, we thought that he was being cursed by God because of his own sins. He's smitten by God and afflicted. But he was not being cursed by God because of his own sins. Look at verse 5. But he was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. And now we start seeing, you can connect the piercing of this servant to the crucifixion of Jesus. According to Deuteronomy, the man who hangs on a cross is cursed by God. According to the Romans, that was the punishment of slaves and rebels. One scholar says, above all, it was the slave's punishment, crucifixion, a penalty reserved for slaves. This gives new meaning to the term servant used in Isaiah. It can also mean slave. Jesus died the death of a slave. He was pierced, entirely pierced. His head was pierced with a crown of thorns. His side was pierced with a spear. His back was pierced with a scourging. His hands and feet were pierced with nails. His character was pierced with lies. And his heart was pierced with betrayal. Pierced for our transgressions. And here we see the depravity of man. And sadly, we always want to see man as good. Mankind as good. And here we see the true nature of sin. How sin is ugly, heinous. It's our griefs. It's our sorrows. It's our transgressions. It's our iniquities. Look at verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah pictures humanity here as if he was drawing humanity. He draws as this massive flock of sheep. Here's humanity. All walking away from the good shepherd. Moving away. This massive flock of sheep. Far away from the good shepherd. And what happens when sheep goes away from the shepherd. It's death. Sheep cannot survive without the caring of a shepherd in the wild. So the picture is of a flock of dead people heading to destruction. That's the picture that Isaiah paints of humanity. 
And we, before Christ saved us. And you might say, no, no, that's cool, but I'm not there. I cannot see my face there. Look how he says, we, each one of us, don't try to escape here. Don't try to think that your face was not there. Each one of us have sought our own way. Meaning, we, it's okay, God's way, but my way. And that's sin. Sin is always related to selfishness. You desire your own way. And you don't need to teach little kids to be selfish. It shows that's in the DNA. And that's total depravity. Paul says, for the love of Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That, that was our lives before Christ, living for ourselves. Each one of us as sheep seeking his own way. All those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We need a shepherd to rescue us. We need a shepherd who will save us from ourselves. And now, finally, look at the nature of Jesus' death. How powerful, how victorious is Jesus' death. This stanza here shouts out loud the doctrine of limited atonement. Jesus died for his people. Jesus receives not only the pain, but also the penalty of the sins of his people. If Jesus died for everyone, then everyone had their transgressions what? Forgiven. If Jesus died for every single person... In the world, then everyone is what? Forgiven. Why do I believe in Him? Why do I believe in Jesus? Because He died for my unbelief. That's the only reason. Unbelief is a sin. He died for my sins, so He paid for my unbelief. And that's why in time, there was a time when now I heard the gospel. And I believed. Why? Because he forgave my unbelief. That's the doctrine of limited or powerful atonement. He died for his people. See, our, us. That's for whom this servant died. It says, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, lame. Just like the day of atonement when the high priest would lay his hands upon the animal, representing the iniquity of the people. Jesus receives upon himself our iniquity. Remember, one animal was sacrificed, the other animal was sent into exile, and Jesus receives both. The servant became sick and infected on behalf of his people. Stephen Dempster writes, People considered him to be the object of divine judgment. But he was not suffering for his own sake. He was suffering for the people, laden with guilt. The sickness of the people, so vividly vividly depicted in chapter 1, are not his. Yahweh strikes him for them. 
an obedient son for disobedient children. All the suffering, all the pain, rejection, affliction, agony was on behalf of his people. And you can see our, 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 us. Martin Luther said these words, our, us, for us, must be, must be written in letters of gold. He who does not believe this is not a Christian. The servant of Yahweh, the good shepherd, died for his people's sin. The angel tells Mary that his name must be what? Jesus. Why Jesus? For he what? shall save his people. Not he shall make his people savable. He will save his people. When Jesus died, he accomplished the work that was given him. It's done. It's done. It's not, I hope it's done by someone fulfilling what's missing. It's done. Accomplished. He did not die to provide the possibility of forgiveness, but he died to provide forgiveness for his people. That's the reason why he was there. And we need to behold this, our, my transgression, my iniquity, my grief, my sin. That's what Martin Luther said, Christus pro me, Christ for me. And he said, it's not enough. It's not enough to know about the doctrine of atonement. It's not enough to know why Christ died. Demons know why Christ died. Demons, demons know the doctrine of atonement better than most of us. Until, he says, until your soul has taken grasp of that, it was for me, my sins, my iniquity, my penalty, he took upon himself. That's when you become united with him. And you find yourself in Christ, in Him. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The shalom, the harmony. God's face shining upon His children that was first established in Genesis 1 and 2 and then broken and lost in Genesis 3 is now restored by this last Adam. Chastisement upon him now brings us shalom, restoration with God. We can enjoy God now because of his death. So, we sing here, men of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah! What? What a Savior! What a Savior! David Clarkson, a Puritan, he says, Christ's love made him willing to suffer for us. He who caused the vast fabric of heaven and earth to start out of nothing, King of kings and Lord of lords, was content to take upon him the form of a slave. He who was the object of eternal praises was out of love for us, reviled and slandered as a drunkard, a glutton, a blasphemer, a madman, and a man possessed with the devil. 
He in whom was the presence of joy, fullness of joy, was for the love of us willing to become a man of sorrows. This love made the Lord of life to die a cursed and cruel death. And then he says, Oh, the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of Christ. Our thoughts are swallowed up in it. This depth. And there must be content until glory shall enable us to have no other employment but to praise, admire, and adore this love of Christ. Amen? And we must stand amazed in the presence of this suffering servant. But you see, we ended here, and where is Jesus? Where is the suffering servant? Verse 9. Buried. There is more to come from this song. We descended to the crisis, but it's not over yet. We are going to ascend with Jesus as he ascends into heaven. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We praise you and we thank you that you are a sovereign, powerful, and yet merciful and gracious God. Jesus, we stand in awe of you. We stand amazed in the presence of the suffering servant who bore our griefs, our sorrows, our iniquities. The one who was in the presence of fullness of joy took upon himself the presence of sorrow and grief in order to bring us into the house of the Lord and to enjoy his smiling face. Help us to behold the death of the servant and treasure this death and praise him for dying on our place. And Lord, we know that because you died for your people, there are people who have been bought by your blood, and they only need to hear us proclaiming the gospel. So help us to go forth and preach this beautiful gospel, the good news that our God reigns, this beautiful news that the arm of the Lord has been shown and active in Jesus. It's for the glory of your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.